Okay, so as we get to the book of Hosea, this will be the first of the 12 that we try to look at. Let's look at Hosea and Joel today. Uh, the first thing we have here is a timeline to get our bearings on what's going on during the, uh, the time period for Hosea. So Uzziah became king in about 792 B.C. Jeroboam the, the second became king of, of Israel, 786. Jeroboam the second dies in 747. Uzziah dies and Jotham becomes king of Judah in 742. So you can see that we're bouncing back and forth, just like the book of Kings does. Um, Judah, Israel, okay, then uh, back to Judah. Jotham dies and Ahaz becomes king of Judah. And Syria, 722, conquers Israel. Ahaz dies and Hezekiah becomes king of, of Judah. So these are the kings we're dealing with. This is the, the time frame um, and the historical background a little bit. Okay. Um, the world powers, if, if you want the, the big picture here, is you already know the, the outline, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, um, Rome, and uh, Greece, the independence is, is left out of this timeline. But that's the, the big picture for that, um, if you want to go back and, and reference that. Isaiah and Micah prophesying in Judah, while Hosea prophesying in Israel. Okay, So that's the con contemporary or contemporaneous uh, prophets of the time. And this here on the map shows some of the places that are related. So Jezreel is going to be one of the places that we will discuss. So that's up here. Remember Sea of Galilee? Jordan River leading down to the Dead Sea. So Jezreel, we're talking up in the Galilean area, the north, okay? Um, the Israel uh, area. So we're dealing with, remember on the 12, it goes north, south, north, south, north, south, right? So Hosea will be uh, giving a message to the northern kingdom, and then uh, Joel will be looking at the southern kingdom, okay? Samaria, of course, was uh, the capital. And that's just some of the other cities that will become part of it. The title of the book comes from the name of the main character. Hosea means salvation. Okay? Same as uh, Joshua. However, when we talk about them, you don't want to confuse them, but there's, there's Joshua. There's Hosea, the last king of Israel. There's Hosea who is the prophet we're talking about. Now, their names are actually like the same, Hosea and Hosea. Um, but to keep them separate, they have kind of translated it as Hosea. Jesus um, also comes from there. So all these names come from the same root. Now, remember, originally there's no vowels in the Hebrew. He is the son of uh, Berias, but we know nothing else about to flesh that out. Jotham indicates he's the last writing prophet of the north. So remember that a few of these are out of chronological order. Okay? So he's going to prophesy up till the, the time period pretty much close to years or so leading up to uh, that time period. Right. The author of the book, all right? Now, if, if I don't mention it for, for everyone that we look at, you always have a traditional and a critical. Very rarely do they you know, agree completely on everything. So the traditional is always pretty much going to be who you think it is, like the guy that's, that's named in the title, you know? And then the critical is going to be, you know, probably all over the board, right? So According to 1 1 and tradition, it says the word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beria, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So, Hosea 1 1, it, it tells us, okay, God speaks to him. Since Hosea was a citizen of Israel, okay, some feel that the mention of Judah would be out of place for Hosea, and thus they date um, an authorship or are kind of unsettled. 
So he's one of the three northern prophets. Uh, it's kind of viewed as a home missionary. Moving on to the date of the book. As we just read in 1-1, it tells you based on the king. So if you can date the kings, you can date the book. So the limits of Hosea's ministry were from the reign of Uzziah to that of Hezekiah. Okay? Now, uh, was he prophesying repeatedly during this entire time period? Um, no, don't exactly know all the specifics of that. Um, so Uzziah's reign was around 792 to 740, and Hezekiah 728 to 686. So a period a little larger than the 25 you know, years that I mentioned earlier. But he only mentions uh, Jeroboam II, <coughs> Hosea's ministry included the reigns of the rest of, of those kings, okay? He's also contemporary with Isaiah, Amos, Jonah, and Micah. And so, Darushi indicates to summarize it down about 760 to, to 730 is the, the time frame. So, it's about 40 years, or 30 years in there. So, one of the things that... Um, especially with the, the prophets that don't specifically date things, is wide ranging. So, you know, I think I've heard or read as, as I was reviewing my notes and putting my notes, you know, you got 25, you got 30, you got 45, you got something else that said, you know, so you have a range that is um, a little uh, larger with variance. So a little too many, a few too many variants, you know, than what we would prefer to have. Hosea's prophetic ministry came during the most chaotic period in the northern kingdom's history. Trouble had begun with the division of the, of the kingdom after the death of Solomon. And so you got God's warning of the division, and then Solomon's death, Rehoboam is succeeded to the throne. Uh, request for mercy, Rehoboam's answer is no, you're not going to get mercy. Israel's rebellion, Jeroboam is made uh, king in the north, and then Jeroboam destroyed the religious unity as he brought about the worship of so, this is the historical uh, backdrop for what's happening. Hosea began ministering near the end of an era of great uh, material prosperity and military success for both Israel and Judah. Um, in the first half of the 8th century BC, Assyrian influence in the west had declined temporarily, allowing both Jeroboam II and Uzziah to flourish. However, under Tiglath-Pileser III, Assyria began to grow stronger again and expand westward again. In 734 BC, the northern kingdom became part of the puppet nation with the Assyrian Empire. And after Israel tried to revolt, Assyria defeated Samaria, the capital of the north, in 722 BC and deported the people of Israel into captivity. Judah also became a vassal state in the Assyrian Empire during Hosea's ministry. And Hosea's prophecy reflects conditions of economic prosperity, religious formalism, and apostasy and political stability that marked Jeroboam II's reign. So the historical background of Amos is almost identical. Times of prosperity are oftentimes when um, people 
need the Lord. So prosperity and apostasy often go together. Um, wasn't it David that prayed, Lord, give me just, just enough, don't give me too much that I um, turn and become an apostate? Okay? I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it in his words. Um, and, and don't give me too little that I steal and break your commandments. Right? And so we, we see in both of those conditions, you know, that we are prone to turn to our own uh, desires instead of following after God. Religiously, things are pretty bad. So economically, they're good, but religiously, not so much. Okay? I think that, honestly, this is the, the same thing that tends to happen on a fairly regular basis. Groves and on the hills have practiced impure, murderous rites of the heathen gods, even in God's name. Priests turned to robbery and rejoiced in the sin of the people. Hosea used harsh words, whoredom, 17 times to describe those religious conditions. Not good. Not good at all. So, the theological context in this historical situation, three aspects, the religious, the moral, and the political. Religious... Well, Hosea sums up the religious activities of Israel in one word, whoredom. Okay? It might be prostitution, depending on your translation. Whoredom. As a harlot, she prostituted herself before the false gods. The people lacked knowledge, Hosea 4, 6, and 5, 4, and they're ignorant of God's law, Hosea 8, 12. Idols had been set up, and women were serving in the temple as cult prostitutes. Morally, Homer Haley says, their conduct was the very opposite to that which God desired and demanded. The people were guilty of swearing, breaking faith, murder, stealing, committing adultery, deceit, lying, drunkenness, dishonesty in business, and other crimes equally abominable before Yahweh. The picture painted in the book of Hosea is truly that of a nation in decay. And politically, a period of political upheaval in Israel. When Jeroboam died, several came, came to the throne but were quickly assassinated some reigning only a few weeks. And then Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria comes on the scene and exacted heavy tribute from them. Until eventually, in 722, as you know, Assyria falls. So these were trying years of political conniving and intrigue of anarchy and rebellion, treachery and murder. And God was completely left out of the picture and out of the people's thinking. The prophet's task was to turn the thinking of the people back to God. But they were too deeply steeped in their idolatry to heed his warning. And they had tasks appointed no return. They refused to hear. There really is a point of no return. Now, I don't know where that is. Nobody knows where that is for other nations. But there is a, there's a point of no return. And maybe God says it. Their faithlessness was manifested in two major ways. Rebellion against all constituted authority. And dependence upon human defenses and foreign alliances rather than upon the power of Yahweh. We've seen that repeatedly already. We saw that in the other prophets. So that's not going to be a new thing. But that is going to be an emphasis. The cause for the widespread immorality and faithlessness toward God was two things. Corruption of the priests with whom the false prophets were imbued and corruption of worship. In our culture, we say the word worship and we immediately think of what? Music. Music. Yeah. But music isn't worship. Music is music, right? I mean, you can worship through music. professionalism of ministry, right? Some of you are in, in uh, Bible college because you're going to quote go into the ministry, right? But um, the, the fact of the matter is we've lost what the reformers uh, called a vocation, but they didn't come up with it themselves. It's scriptural. It's biblical. Um, that God has, has placed a calling and a vocation on someone's life. And so um, we all are, are called to be part of what God is doing. So your work or vocation, that is your ministry. 
need to keep that in mind. If you're, if you're going to be pastoring or teaching, uh, we need to help people understand that. That uh, the pastor is not the only ministry. Everybody's called to minister and serve God. The pastor's calling is to help equip the people and even to be a prophetic voice to call people back to what they should be. Honestly, as I'm, as I'm reading and studying and thinking through the prophets more and more, um, mainly because I'm teaching this class, uh, I, I already have kind of a bent towards like justice and, and, and this type of thing. But the, the church is, really needs to be the prophetic voice of God in this world, calling, calling people to truth and then living it out. we got to actually live it out. So that's what's going on here. So that's the theological context. Some, th- some themes. Yahweh's unfailing love for his people, even when he must punish them for unfaithfulness. It's a quote from Jerusalem. By placing this message at the beginning of the 12, the incredible depth and passion of Yahweh for his people, sorry about the typo, was demonstrated powerfully for all to see. The judgment of the exile was not the end, but a time for reflection, repentance, and restoration. That's from Dempster. Probably from the Ninian Dynasty, his book. His ideas of mercy and love, okay? This connects us back to that passage for the third time that I'm now mentioning it in Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. Um, Hosea 1, 7, 2, 1, and 14, 3. These ideas of mercy and love. If you look at the words up on the screen in Hebrew, okay, they're in italics here. Now remember, originally there's no what in the Hebrew? There's no vowels. So if you look at the consonants, what do you have? R-H-M and R-H-M. They're the same. Okay? Which means same root word. Alright? Which means mercy and love are very much intertwined. Alright? So in, I, in Hosea, I almost said Isaiah, <clears throat> the illustration of God's love for his disobedient people. Um, the people of God, okay? Israel is mentioned 44 times, Ephraim 37, and Judah 15. All right? God has a concern for his people. But they got to make a choice. They can live in harlotry, talked about 19 different times, represents an open defiance of the marriage covenant between God and his people. Or the other choice for them is a determination to be totally committed to him and him alone. And you have love 15 times, Yahweh 57 times, and knowing his will 19 times. That's from Dan Melton's uh, images. And so that's the, the choice that is set before the people in Hosea. Now, Hosea is a book that is mentioned several times in the New Testament. You may know some of them. In Matthew 2.15, he remains there until the death of Herod. This is fulfilled as been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Jesus. Hosea 1 1 says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew here applies Hosea's prophecy to Jesus' childhood, demonstrating he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, we don't have time to go into all the aspects of, of this prophecy, but there's other aspects. Another hermeneutical aspect to this. Although Matthew's quoting Hosea, Hosea is alluding to the Exodus out of Egypt, right? So really, you've got another layer to add to this. And this is what the, the biblical uh, literature and prophets do. So the hermeneutical aspects of these, as- these things are, are pretty intriguing. And Matthew 9.13 says, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Quoting Hosea 6.6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So just as Israel in Hosea's day kept only the outward acts of the law, Christ poignantly made the Pharisees aware that they were much like their ancestors. And Matthew 12.7 says, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, quoting Hosea 6.6 6 also. 
as above, Jesus clearly rebukes the Pharisees for their outward show of righteousness, while inwardly they have little regard for God and others. In Luke 23.30 says, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. Quoting Hosea 10.8, The high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on the altars, and they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and the hills, Fall on us. Hosea's Israel would face the judgment of God for her, unfaith or for, yeah, her unfaithfulness. And so terrible is that judgment that people would cry out to the hills and the mountains to fall on them. The judgment of Israel for the death of Christ would bring the same kind of crisis. You could jump further to Revelation, and what do the people in Revelation try to do? They hide where? They try to hide in the mountains to avoid what? The judgment of God coming upon them. Okay? The illusions that we see in Scripture just unfold and snowball. In Revelation 6.16, they said to the mountains and the rocks, I'm sorry, I was reading on my paper, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So again, rather than face the judgment of God, it would be better for the mountains to fall on top of those being judged. Who is able to stand? Well, we already know, Psalm 1, the wicked are not able to stand. In Romans 9.25, it says, uh, he's quoting Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. Paul shows that Hosea's prophecy is fulfilled as, as God begins to love and to bring in even the Gentiles into his covenant. And Jew and Gentile are brought together in the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sin? You know that, right? You sing it, right? But did you know it's Hosea 13, 14? Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? Sing. O Sheol, where is your sin? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. And so that well-known phrase that we know is actually Old Testament stuff. Even though Israel in Hosea's day would face judgment, God promised redemption. And Paul emphasizes that the resurrection is the ultimate redemption from death. In 1 Peter 2.10, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Hosea 1.10 says, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said, you're not my people, it will be said, you are the sons of the living God. So the condemned Israelites of Hosea's day and the Gentiles were in the same situation. They were not God's people. The time had come, however, that both Jew and Gentile would be called the sons of the living God. Further reference to Romans 9.26. But you see that Hosea is uh, called upon by the New Testament authors uh, quite repeatedly. In the book I referenced earlier, the uh, spirituality of Paul. Well, there's a chapter in there on Paul and the scriptures. And there's a couple of uh, very good points that I, that I felt made. One of the things he talks about in that chapter how uh, Paul constantly was quoting scripture or alluding to scripture. We, we often think like you have to have a chapter verse to Paul himself. Paul alluded to all the time in chapter verses. And in there, he won't, uh, I won't remember the exact three that he said. But when we first start out, you know, we try to get familiar with Scripture, and then we try to um, to, to think uh, with Scripture or connected to it. But eventually, when we're fully saturated uh, with the Scriptures, uh, we just can't understand. Like, you, you start to think as the Scriptures do. In other words, I would put it even a different way, is you begin to think like God thinks um, from his viewpoint when we're fully saturated. And, and that's what you have with Paul. And so... Um, when, when people say, what does the Bible say about, let's just say marijuana, right? Um, and I say, well, there's no scripture, there's no verse on it, right? Oh, the Bible doesn't say anything. Um, that, that's like the first category. That's like, no, you don't understand like, how the Bible works, right? Um, God, God doesn't have to re reveal a scripture passage, like a chapter verse on every item, right? So when you get to the point where you're like, you have an automatic response. Now, you could do this out of arrogance also, but you have an automatic response of what God thinks of something, and you don't have to have a scripture or verse. It's because you're so well saturated. That's what Paul is. So why can you go to Paul and he'll give you um, uh, an opinion or something on, on whatever is the problem in the church? Um, because the Spirit of God is leading him. Because he's so saturated with the scriptures. Because he knows God. How do you know God? Learn his word. Well, how do you reveal himself? In his word, right? So does that make sense? How the scripture flows through your life, like you're saturated with scriptures? Okay. So, <clears throat> um, 
sure. Oh, that's why I was talking about that. And you brought up the big quote in the New Testament. Right? The text itself, with the possible exception of Job, the book of Hosea has the dubious distinction of having the most obscure passage of the entire Hebrew Bible. That's what this one Hindu scholar says. So, um, this, this guy's not just, uh, you know, just some joke of a guy either. Like, he's getting Hebrew grammar and all those things. So, the sudden mood and subject shifts, the linguistic peculiarities, the least preserved of the Hebrew Bible, and the Septuagint is often overly literalistic and incomprehensible in parts. So, um, all, all of these, uh, you know, areas for uh, investigation and uh, trying to understand these things. Uh, the structure of the book, however, uh, we can we can divide into to two different areas. The the prose, the narrative, okay, the story about an unfaithful wife in one to three, and the prophecies about unfaithful nations in four to fourteen. So these want a simple, two point two part outline of the book. Okay, you can really boil it down to that. Now, in addition to that, um, Constable uh, notes in, in his commentary that. There is this back and forth between uh, judgment and restoration that is discussed in the book of uh, Hosea. So you can see that on the chart in red. <coughs> I often bring uh, John Stevenson's outline into, into the, the class as well. This really is very similar if you kind of look at it. It's, got, it's Hosea's marriage and Hosea's message, which makes for good you know, preaching and easy sermon stuff. But it's really very similar as well. It's, uh, it's really, if you look at it, it's still 1 to 3 and, and 4 to 14. So it's really uh, pretty much the same. Now, the, the additional benefit of throwing this up here for you is that it, it does break it down a few more uh, points for you underneath here. So in the marriage, you know, you got Gomer's unfaithfulness, the discipline, and the restoration. Now that's going to also relate to to Israel with with God, and then the message, the case of God's covenant lawsuit. So we're going to see a, a lawsuit. Okay, imagery here. Remember the oracles we talked about a while back? Oracles of judgment, woe, salvation, and so lawsuit was one of these aspects. And then at the end of the book, the ultimate restoration is going to be um, brought in to that as well. So, the first three chapters, the message, okay, the marriage, the message of the marriage, the illustration, the object lesson here, um, is, is not an allegory. And, and why am I saying that's not an allegory? Uh, because there are four views regarding Hosea's wife. Okay? And the four views are as follows. The book opens, and we're told that Hosea is to go marry Gomer. The allegorical view basically spiritualizes it. Okay, He didn't really marry a prostitute. And the reason for this is because priests were forbidden to marry unchaste women, Leviticus 21.7. So it couldn't have been a real marriage. It just symbolizes Israel and Yahweh. Okay? That's, that's the, old, the allegorical. Uh, what's that? She wasn't a priest, though, right? Well, um, I did not double check uh, on this aspect, but uh, the son of Mary, he must have traced that back. Or it wouldn't have said that. I, I didn't have time to verify that. <coughs> but we don't have, um, I mean, we don't have much info on him. So that won't be very hard to check <laughs> to, uh, to point it out in this way. Um, the literal is, is as it says, okay? You got Hosea and you got Gomer together. Uh, now, there's still a couple questions related to that. But the spirit infidelity view is uh, it's spiritual infidelity, not literal. So she, like Israel, was worshiping idols. She wasn't off actually sleeping with anybody else. She's just bowing down to idols. And then the literal chaste view is that Gomer became a harlot after the marriage. Okay? And it's a wife of whoredom in one spirit kiss, they say. So she was not a prostitute until 
All right, so let's start the book. Jezreel, okay, which means God scatters or sows. All right, these names are all uh, prophetic and have um, meaning related to the context of Hosea's time. So his kids have these names based on what God is going to do. All right, so the first one, God scatters, God sows. And there's, there's both a backward and a forward focus to this, uh, Dr. Skinner would argue. Um, the backward focus has to do with the sin committed in the valley of Jezreel by Ahab and the murder of Ahab's family by Jehu. Okay? Um, I think I have a map for you on that. So, the Jezreel Valley, okay, was a place where many battles took place. Alright? Deborah, Gideon, the Midianites, Saul, Joram, Ahaziah, uh, Jezebel, lots of fighting in the Jezreel Valley. Okay, It's much easier to fight in the valley than it is um, amongst the, the hills. So the, the first name, Jezreel, has to do with that. It was at Jezreel that King Jehu of Israel had massacred many enemies of Israel, including King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel, King Jehoram of Israel, and many prophets of Baal. Um, but he also killed King Ahaziah. Okay, so some of that stuff is like there's good, the prophets, all that. You know, you, you see that as good, probably. But he also killed King Ahaziah of Judah and 42 of his relatives, which was not good. Ahaziah and his relatives did not die in Jezreel, but their deaths were part of Jehu's wholesale slaughter at Jezreel. 
Jehu went too far and therefore demonstrated disrespect for the Lord's command. Um, we call Jehu Bloody Jehu because he went and slaughtered everybody. Because of Jehu's atrocities that overstepped his authority to judge Israel's enemies, God promised to punish his house, his dynasty. The fulfillment came when Shalom assassinated King Zechariah, Jeroboam II's son, and the fourth king of Jehu's dynasty in 753 to 753 BC. This death ended Jehu's kingdom, his dynasty, and forever. 2 Kings 15.10 is your Bible reference. So, that, that is the, the background for a, a literalistic interpretation of the name Jezreel. There's a second view. Another view is the reference to putting an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel referred to the demise of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Um, it's difficult to determine if the word rendered kingdom should be translated as kingdom or kingship. Again, you got to go back to what we know about in Hebrew, right? No vowels, so you're talking about three in consonant, okay? So which is it? When Hosea wrote, okay, as I just mentioned, the, the consonants only, no vowels. And so between those two um, aspects, you, you've got to make a, a decision. So it could also be um, some combination of them. But obviously, what, what God is for sure saying is that there's going to be this, this judgment happening. You also have the idea um, that the name is either scattered or sowed, that after they're scattered, they'll be re-sown in the land. So um, this is the Jezreel Valley. Okay, So you can see that um, you, would, you would come down off the hills, and then you would fight in the valley. Okay. And then your, your encampment might be up in the hills where it's more protected, but then you, you would come down to fight. So, when you look at this backward and the forward aspect, after being scattered, they would be re-sown in the land. This is part of the regathering, okay, and the restoration aspect and giving back to the land. Okay? So, uh, Dr. Skinner argues that there's kind of this double aspect related to the naming uh, of the individual as it refers to Jezreel. So as you can tell, I mean, that's one verse, right? And you've got uh, a handful of interpretive issues to figure out um, the nuances of, of what is actually being uh, said or implied in the text. Now, we know the big picture. They had to use judgment. The second uh, child, okay, Lo Ruhama, no pity or mercy, or in the Holman it was translated as no compassion, okay? And the third one. says here is, I am not, I am to you. Okay, this is the whole Yahweh aspect, okay? So, I've kind of, probably because of the influence of, um, well, Bruce Walsky and some others, Bruce Walsky uses I am, and it's in context with theology throughout the whole thing. Um, but, uh, I've, gone, I've kind of gone away from the Jehovah um, of, of using Yahweh and I am. So, the, the verse is, are simply uh, some cross-references related to the background for this. So, each section on Hosea's children contains a birth notice, a word of instruction from the Lord about the child's name, and an explanation of the meaning of the name. The names of Hosea's children all reminded everyone who heard them of the broken relationship that existed between Yahweh and Israel, and each one anticipated the judgment. So, despite the, the things that we're not sure of, or the debatable aspects, what we do know is that these names are all prophetic judgments on God's people because they broke the covenant.
Verse 5, by the way, before it, I don't know why it didn't switch, but verse 5, the bow, okay, when you see the word bow, okay, so these are um, armaments, right? It's referring to the power, okay, so it's going to be broken. Israel's power will be removed, broken, etc. Somehow it got the setting got switched or something. There's going to be a reversal that takes place in chapter one ten through chapter two one. Okay, um, Israel will be scattered. Okay, but then not my people will become my people in two one and in two twenty three, and the no mercy will become will will get mercy in two one and in and twenty three also. Okay, so. Chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 23 is, is significant for this reversal uh, that takes place. Another comment is on, um, in, in chapter 1, it says that, um, let me see where it was. Obviously, there is some uh, imagery and illusion. When we're talking about the, num the numbers that can't be counted, etc., that's back to Abraham's covenant. And uh, the rulership of a single ruler is going to be the same thing we've talked about in the 12 that point forward to the messianic ruler. We mentioned that in our intro. And I think there was one more thing I wanted to mention. Um, oh, I will deliver them by the Lord their God. So this is um, leading up to um, the Assyrians taking the northern kingdom. And so uh, Judah will be delivered by God without um, human method. Yeah? And, and many think that this is referring to when the Assyrian army came to Jerusalem and 185,000 of them uh, were killed by God. So uh, this may be pointing forward to that as well. From here in Isaiah, or I mean in Hosea, uh, chapter two, verse two. Okay, after these prophetic names are given, all right, and you see the connections and the reversals that begins to take place in, in two one. Okay, so in two one you see the reversal, but then after that in two two and following we have the lawsuit. Okay, this is God's lawsuit against His people. And so there's a divorce and a restoration. All right, and the oracle type here is the indictment is in verses 2, 5, and 8. There's a warning and judgment in verses 3 and 4, 6 and 7, and 9 to 13. Instructions are in 2, 2, and then salvation in 14 to 15. Okay, so if you look at your text, okay, you can kind of, you know, mark it up. I always write in, in my Bible, but if you look in chapter 2, verse 2, the indictment and the instructions. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. She is not my wife, I am not her husband. Okay, and so this is the indictment. It's a summons to court, okay, in, in this section uh, where God is the plaintiff, Yahweh, and the defendant is Israel, okay? It says, let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adulterer from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was in the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they're the children of promiscuity. And so in verses 3 and 4, you have the warning of judgment. Okay, And it's keyed in by the first word in verse 3, which is otherwise in the Holman, I think it's lack or something like that in the ESV. Um, what do you guys read? What's 3, 1, first word? Less? Okay. And you're going to find the same thing in verse number 6 and in verse 9. What word do you have there? I got therefore in the whole thing. Therefore? You guys got the same? Okay. So in, so verse 3, 6, and 9, okay, these are the, the first verse of the three warning or judgment sections, okay? Three, it's, just, it's verse 3, 4, 6, 7, and then 9 to 13. And that's the catch word that tells you this, okay? So that's three and four. Verse five, the indictment and the charge comes up. Okay? 
Their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. She thought, I'll go after my lover, the men who give me my food and my water, my wool, my flax, my own, my drink. Now, those things there, that's the provision. Okay, so instead of God being the provider, you're seeking some other um, aspect for provision and for being your provider. So think about all the Psalms, all the scriptures that talk about God is my provider, right? No, not for them. They, they're forsaking God, and, and they think that their provision comes from elsewhere. And so verse 6 again is, is the, the therefore, it's a warning or judgment. Therefore, this is what I will do. I'll block her way with thorns. I'll enclose her with a wall so she cannot find her path. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. And then she'll think, I'll go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She doesn't recognize, this is an indictment now in verse 8, that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. I lavished silver and gold in her, which they used for bail. So the, uh, the indictment in verse 5 of seeking provision elsewhere is countered or paralleled in verse 8 with the indictment that says that I was the provider all along, and you used your provision to, to seek after wrong things or other lovers. In verse 6 and 7, the warning and judgment talks about the entrapment and the lack of uh, guidance. And so then you have the third warning and judgment in verses 9 to 13. It says, therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. In other words, I will remove my provision, and the judgment will be that you lack provision. You, you have not and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. All this is provision. Now I will expose her shame, so now you have public shame will be part of your judgment, in the sight of her lovers. And no one will rescue her from my hand. In other words, you're helpless. So not only do you lack provision, but now you lack protection. I will put an end to her celebrations, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, her festivals. Okay. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks these are her wages, but that her lover has given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them, and I will punish her for her days of the bales when she burned incense to them, and her rings and jewelry went after her lovers but forgot me. So her secretism, her polytheism, her missing of all the, the bales is going to bring misery and waste and helplessness and a, a lack of festivals that related to joy, right, and celebration. So I'm removing those. So you're, you're going to have the opposite. So... Within this chapter 2, this lawsuit, you've got those different aspects. You all with me so far? Okay? To continue, okay, um, he says, this is the Lord's declaration. So that means it's going to happen, okay? God said it, take it to the bank. Verse 14 and 15, then, um, are the salvation, okay? The aftermath. Starts with the word, therefore, again. I'm going to persuade her, okay? Lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is a renewed courtship, okay? A renewed hope. So there's a, this idea of a divorce and then a restoration, which that's that's the that's the kind of divorce God likes. Okay, get divorced and get remarried. Um, I've known a couple people in my life actually that that's actually happened. They they got divorced and then um, God brought them to uh, repentance and they got remarried. So therefore, uh, I will give her vineyard back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope, and there she will respond as she did in the day of her youth. As in the days she came out of the land of Egypt, in that day you will call me husband and no longer Baal. Okay? Now in verse 15, okay, we are reminded of an incident in the Old Testament. Okay? That has happened way back in the book of Joshua. Um, but before I jump into that, so the legal context um, of what we're talking about. Okay? Uh, pleading. Okay? Uh, to make or participate in a lawsuit against, all right? So the Old Testament background for this, Jeremiah 3.8. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, okay? The decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Isaiah 51. Thus says Yahweh, where is your, your mother's certificate of divorce? So the decree of divorce, the certificate of divorce, this that word, this Hebrew word, okay? Um, plead, it's translated there, but it's about a lawsuit, all right? Or which of my creditors to whom I have sold you? So it's Isaiah and Jeremiah, which are uh, some of the backdrop to the 12, all right, the minor prophets, um, they've already prepped them. They've already talked about 
this aspect of God's judgment in his lawsuit against them. So in 2, 14, and 15, which is where we're at now, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Okay? So what is um, Achor and Achan? we got to go all the way back to Joshua. Achan's the one that stole the stuff and wasn't supposed to take. But then God kills him for it. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, good. Joshua and all the Israel with him. He took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, the sons, the daughters, the oxen, his tent, the sheep, all that. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Okay? Remember, they took the stuff that they weren't supposed to take after their battle. Okay? It was devoted. It was dedicated to God. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? That's what the word means. Okay? Troubled. All right? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and burned them with fire after they stoned them, stoned them with stones. So what's happening here is that um, Hosea is referencing back to this. 15, I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Achor being trouble. Okay? The valley of trouble will become what? A door of hope. So God's going to do a reversal here, all right, on what took place in the, in the past, all right? Continue this on, and there's going to be this idea of present unfaithfulness is going to go to captivity, but then there's going to be a return. So there's a reversal of, of what God is doing in their situation and in their life. continue on it says in verse 17 I will remove the names of the Baals from the mouth they will no longer be remembered by their names on that day I will make a covenant for them a new covenant with the wild animals the birds, the creatures, etc I will shatter bow, sword, and weapon of war I will enable the people to rest securely so we're back to having that uh, peace and security okay Verse 19, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. On that day, I will respond. So the people were back in the land with God in covenant relationship. I'll respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land myself. I will have compassion on no compassion. Reversal. I will say to you, not my people. You are my people. And he will say, you are my God. And so a great reversal will take place all at whose bidding? God's bidding. God will do it. Verse chapter 3. Then the Lord said, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. <laughs> Related to the pagan idol, the idolatry stuff. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley, and I said to her, you must live with me many days. Don't be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way towards you. But the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. And afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord and David, their king. Okay, that was the first mention of David here, right? So remember how we talked about in verse 12, one of the, the themes was this idea of David and how that's actually quite prevalent. Okay, so here in Hosea, we have David being mentioned. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Um, chapter 4 is going to bring us to another indictment. Chapter 4, verse 1. You're going to have that, that same indictment word again, that God has a lawsuit. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel, for the Lord has a case, is the Holman word. So in, in 2, 2, 4, 1, and 12, 2, you have the same word. Okay? Rib. Okay? R-I-B. Rib. Okay? I have a case against the inhabitants of the land. What's the case? There's no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, steal, adultery, rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. I mean, can't we kind of 
say the same thing about America? I mean, honestly? So, what is the case? Well, Israel has forgotten Yahweh. There's no knowledge, there's no loyalty, and there's no truth in the land. That's the message. So what is God going to do about it? Okay, The more they multiply, chapter 4, verse 7, the more they sin. I will change their honor to disgrace. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their transgression. The same judgment will happen to both people and priests. I will punish them for their ways. Repay them for their deeds. Why people and priests? Because they used to send the people. They're all in it together. It's like they've all conspired against the king of the universe. What do they do in verse 13? They sacrifice on the mountains. They burn offerings on the hills. Under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is pleasant. Until your daughters act promiscuously and your daughter-in-laws commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they act promiscuously or your daughter-in-laws when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go off with prostitutes and make sacrifices and call prostitutes. People without discernment are doomed. People without discernment are doomed. That's, uh, one of these days I'm going to remember the Proverbs. That's people without uh, vision perish. All right, that is people without the revelation of God cast off restraint and go amok. You know, people think that's what's going on right there. Um, Israel, if you act promiscuously, don't let Judah become guilty. Don't go to Gilgal or make pilgrimages to Beth Avon, and don't swear an oath as the Lord lives. So Israel is as obstinate as a stubborn cow. Can the Lord now shepherd them like a lamb in an open meadow? Ephraim is attached to idols. Leave them alone. When their drinking is over, they turn to promiscuity. Israel's leaders fervently love disgrace. A wind with its wings will carry them off, and they'll be ashamed of their sacrifices. And so, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 13, what you're going to end up finding is Yahweh's judgment, which is going to be picked up in chapters 10, 6 to 7, and 11, 5 to 7, and then the crisis of a loving husband, 11, 9, 13, 4, 14, 8. The rest of chapter 4 through 13... Stevenson has laid it out like this. We've already mentioned in 4.1, the covenant lawsuit. You've rejected knowledge, spiritual prostitution, okay? Use of the term harlotry, warning against insincere repentance. And here in the middle of the turning point, the case against the kings and the leaders. Then coming back in, warning against insincere repentance, spiritual prostitution. Israel has played the, the prostitute or the harlot, the whore. God's love and compassion is uh, rejected, and God's covenant lawsuit again in 12.13. So remember, uh, it was 2.2.4.1 and 12.2, right, are the lawsuit thing. So that use of that word rib, right? So you have it here, and you have it here, and then you had it the first time back in chapter 2. All right? So the rest of the, the book outlines that, and you can see the, uh, the lawsuit motif. God's charges, which are fairly repetitive. Um, Israel, the people, are the prostitutes. Okay? They're a whore harlot. All right? um, the end of the book is, is going to wrap up with uh, some semblance of, of hope in chapter 14. Okay? You've got the call in chapter 14, verse 1. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your sins. You have the confession in 2 and 3. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive our sin and accept what is good, so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands, for the faith fatherless receives compassion in you. So we're not going to trust in Assyria. We're going to trust in you. All right? We're not going to build our idols with our hands. Then Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about that we, we cut down a tree and we, we cover it with uh, melted gold and silver and it can't talk or hear. We carry it around ourselves and yet we somehow think that it's the, the God that's going to serve and protect and save us. And then in verses 4 through 7, the comfort. I'll heal, the, heal their apostasy. I'll freely love them for my anger will have turned from me. I'll be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread. His splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath its shade. They'll grow grain and blossom like the vine. 
his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. And the conclusion in verse 9. Let whoever is wise understand these things, and whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in darkness. And so the, the hope that ends in, in, in uh, Isaiah or Hosea, the idea that there is this repentance, there is this return, there is this reversal that God can do, there is a hope that is held out, which is a, a running theme through the prophetic literature. Sin, punishment, judgment, and the idea of restoration of hope uh, that is held out to them. Okay, uh, lastly, is a comparison with Hosea and Gomer and Yahweh and Israel. This is from uh, Tom Thompson, I believe. So you can see here um, quickly just some of the parallels between Hosea, Gomer, and, and Yahweh in Israel. And they're pretty much self-explanatory. I don't really need to uh, comment on them. I, I think we can see what the parallels are. So uh, that'll conclude our our quick survey of the book of Hosea.